0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thailand's Bumangrad International Hospital is one of a growing number of institutions making a name for themselves among medical tourists. By offering patients from Boston to Bahrain a combination of lower-cost, state-of-the-art medical care, along with service worthy of a five-star hotel, but what will it take for such hospitals to gain acceptance among national policymakers, major insurers, and employers? Mac Banner, CEO of Bumingrad, and, and Kenneth Mays, the hospital's director of marketing, recently spoke with Ravi Arone, a senior fellow with the William and Phyllis Mack Center for Technological Innovation at Wharton, about the future of offshore healthcare.
1: Can you trace the origins of Bumingrad Hospital? Why it was constituted initially? how the Asian financial crisis, the impact of the financial crisis, and the changed business model and where you are now.
2: I can probably do that uh, in shortly here. We, our hospital is a private hospital. We're 29 years old this year, and our hospital is known for the current building that we're in uh, that was opened on January 1, 1997. Um, it cost us $110 million to build, and we borrowed $65 million Um, of those in U.S. dollar-denominated debt. Unfortunately, in July of that year, the Asian financial crisis began in Bangkok, and all of our demand dried up. The private sector demand for health care in Bangkok and in Thailand and pretty much uh, around the region dried up. The silver lining in that cloud, when we were dealing with a a hospital that was facing... (laughs) Almost insolvency at that time. The silver lining was that with the bot depreciating from 25 to the dollar to 50 to the dollar, we became half price almost overnight for those paying for their care in U.S. dollars. Right. So that prompted us at that time to go off and and start looking for patients and marketing for patients in the surrounding area, and that really began our foray into caring for international patients. And over the subsequent uh, about six to eight, ten years, we became increasingly known for what's now called medical tourism. And that was pro- it was helped in a, in, a, in a weird sort of way. Uh, with the 9-11 crisis in 2001, basically after that, the uh, United States uh, put some visa restrictions, as did Europe, on a lot of uh, uh, people... From the Middle East, it was just harder to get into the U.S. for a while, and that prompted a lot of the Middle Eastern uh, patients to that had been going to the U.S. and still go to the U.S. Uh, in large numbers. It prompted them to seek out some alternatives, and they began to uh, they t- they came to uh, Bangkok and to our hospital. Uh, we saw about 12,000 Middle Eastern patients in 2001 and last year we've seen about 100,000, over 100,000. So we saw several events that over the last uh, 10 years has elevated our hospital's uh, sort of profile within the international medical community to where we now see, of about 3,000 outpatients a day, we see about 1,200 of those per day are non-TI. So if you come into our lobby, it's sort of like going into the Terminal 3 of... Heathrow Airport.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. We
2: uh, continue to see uh, international patients um, as a, they make up about 42% of our patient volume, but about 55% of our revenue because the patients that come to us from international settings are coming for the higher, generally speaking, they're coming for a mix, a mix of procedures, but a fair number of those are the higher end procedures. So they make up a, uh, a uh, an important part of our overall uh, patient base, uh, and we have developed services over the over the years to respond to their special requirements.
1: So, the fact that about twelve hundred of your three thousand are international patients would mean that. Um, your base of skilled clinicians, doctors, lab technicians, ward nurses, etc., has to be of very high quality, and I suspect many of your doctors are probably U.S. educated. Can you tell us a little bit about the qualifications of your physicians? How do you recruit them? How do you keep them? Um,
2: we're, we're fortunate in Thailand generally in that there is uh, a fairly good supply of of well-trained medical personnel across the board, from medical staff, doctors, nurses, technicians. Uh, there, there is a very vibrant uh, medical education uh, system here for um, across the board here in in Thailand. Um, for doctors, we we had a we had a real advantage when we opened this hospital in that there were a lot of Thai doctors that had gone to the U.S. back in the '90s to further their education, and and some of them they set they set up practices there in the U.S. And when we opened our hospital, and and what we offered was an alternative to come back and and have a uh, a, a meaningful practice in the private sector here in Bangkok. And so we got uh, a fair number to come back and enter the private sector in association with our hospital back after we opened the hospital in the late 90s. About 200, we have have about 1,100-plus doctors affiliated with our hospital, and about 200 or more, about 225 of those, have obtained their U.S. board certification before they came back.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your global footprint. You mentioned a very substantial number of patients that you're treating from outside of Thailand. What are the major regions of the world from which you attract patients, and what are the reasons to come to Bumangrad Hospital?
3: Well, the the, the top region is Southeast Asia, uh, given that about 600,000 patients are Thai, uh, which is still the majority of our patient volume. Uh, and then we have a, a large number of patients that come uh, that are either uh, expats in Thailand or the region, or uh, come from surrounding countries like uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Burma, Bangladesh, who are using us as a regional hospital, as a regional uh, center of excellence, and for advanced treatment they would come to Bamrungrot, maybe much in the same way as someone in the U.S. might fly to the Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins. Um, now, outside, as, as we as we go farther away from Bangkok, um, North America, we get about 30,000 patients a year from North America. We get a, a little less than 30,000 patients a year from, from Europe. Uh, we get a little less than 30,000 patients a year from, from East Asia, uh, Japan, China, and so forth. Uh, we're... Uh, as, as Mac mentioned, we're get over, we get over 100,000 patients a year from the Middle East, and those are mainly the Gulf countries, uh, principally the Emirates, uh, Qatar, and Oman, and growing numbers from Africa as well, and, and some, from, uh, some from Australia. We get, we get patients from, uh, through, through June this year, we've, got, we've seen patients from 191 different countries uh, and that's typical. We'll we, we top out a little over 200, which is basically about every country in the world uh, at, at some point in the year we'll see a patient from. Um, and they come to us for different reasons. Uh, they come to us for quality and for uh, value and for access, and there's a difference by region in terms of uh, which of those reasons is, is important.
1: Please tell us about it. The reasons and the regions. We'd be very happy to...
3: Well, uh within this region within Southeast Asia as I said they tend to come to us for quality reasons uh, uh, within this region and also in the Middle East uh, Africa uh, countries uh, emerging markets like Mongolia uh, patients would come to us because um, the the patients that have the money to afford advanced care cannot find that at their uh, at their hospitals in their country and so if they have, If they need advanced treatment, uh, they would see us as a good option for that, and and they would fly to Bangkok for that, and there would be a direct nonstop flight probably to Bangkok. So, you know, we'd be maybe anywhere from uh, two to six hours away for them. Uh, So quality would be the leading thing for for those people. Uh, From America, from, from the U.S., it's principally cost. We're anywhere from 50 to 80 percent less expensive for comparable procedures than the U.S., so... Uh, we will see people from the U.S. who are uninsured or underinsured and, um, uh, you know, coming here for a heart operation or a hip operation can make the difference between being able to afford that operation and still have some money left in savings versus draining your life savings or, or just not being able to have that operation. Uh, from from Europe and some of the parts of the world where there are social medicine programs, uh, we'll see patients, uh, some patients for access reasons, in other words, uh, They may be on a waiting list for eight or nine months to get a knee replacement. They're in pain in the meantime, and so they can come get it here uh, right
1: away. So walk us through sort of the typical cycle of events when a patient calls Bumangrad and is beginning to, from the time that he's beginning to explore, coming there for a procedure until he chooses a physician, gets admitted, completes the procedure, and leaves. What would be a kind of a cycle of events?
2: Depending on how they make their initial contact, they probably end up at our referral center. And that's a team of about, about 16 to 20 um, of our staff that handle anywhere from 300 to 500 email inquiries every day. And they do that in conjunction with our International Medical Coordination Officer, that uh, office, that's that group that Ken was mentioning earlier, a group of about 20, 25 doctors and nurses, and generally the patients will come with either a general inquiry or a very, very specific inquiry about a particular procedure or a cost inquiry or whatever. And uh, that team, the referral office in conjunction with the EMCO, they, uh, they respond to those inquiries. And some patients aren't suitable to travel and we try to advise those uh, when we don't feel like they're a suitable candidate to come uh, to us for travel, we try to advise uh, against them. Those that do come, we try to give a, a, uh, a preliminary plan of how they would be diagnosed and what we think might be the treatment, uh, treatment plan for them. And of course, we're very careful and very particular about emphasizing that the care for patients really don't begin until they are, co- till they come here to Bhutan and are examined by a doctor. So once they come here, their their um, their appointments have been pre-scheduled, and any special needs should have been identified. Uh, they might have in the way of interpreters or uh, or assistance in uh, wheelchairs or whatever.
1: At the heart of this phenomenon, a person entrusting herself to a care. Of experts in a country far away that she probably has never visited in her life is the issue of quality, and there are a number of different aspects of quality that I was uh, I was given access to when I visited with you folks a couple of times. But we'd like to uh, bring this out for our readers. So let's start with your JCI certification. Tell us about your JCI certification. Were you the first hospital in Thailand to be JCI certified?
2: We actually were the first hospital in Asia to be uh, JCI uh, accredited back in 2002, and we've been uh, reaccredited uh, three times. Most recently, uh, last year, for a three-year accreditation. The Joint Commission uh, International is it's an American it's an American organization. Uh, it's the international arm of what's the JCO uh, Joint, uh, Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, and that's sort of the gold standard for accrediting hospitals and other healthcare institutions in the states. And about 10 years ago, they they launched an international division and began an international accreditation program. As I mentioned, we were the first hospital in Asia, and I think it had, we checked their website, but I think they have now accredited about 240-plus hospitals outside of the U.S. Now, the standards they use are comparable to the standards for the U.S., but they are a little less U.S.-centric.
1: Okay. Um, What else do you measure? I noticed that um, the various metrics that I was looking at, you have a suite of metrics that goes way beyond what JCI specifies in its accreditation standards. So tell us a little bit about things like medical error rates, recovery rates, time. What do you measure and how do you compare with uh, say the average American hospital?
2: We try to measure just about everything. Uh, We probably have uh, measurements, uh, probably three to five hundred measurements that we do. We have a, a TQM office that works with our Quality Management Committee uh, on clinical measures, very similar to what you would have in the U.S., and they, they, they measure everything just like you said. Most of the quality measures are things that are uh, the absence of things going bad. In other words, a medication error, an infection rate, a fall rate, an unplanned readmission to the emergency room, an unplanned return to the operating theater, all of those things. We measure them very similar to what you would measure in, in the U.S. It's it's one of the one of the uh, probably the underdeveloped uh, features of international medicine is the comparability of outcome measures and quality measures internationally. which which would allow a hospital to benchmark themselves against other hospitals, leading hospitals in the world, as well as the leading hospitals in the U.S. And the issue there is on the definitions of how data are collected. that it's absolutely key that you need to collect your quality data using exactly the same definitions because if you're looking at an infection rate, you need to have exact, exact same definitions. If you're looking at medication error rates or any number of medication errors that can occur, you need to be able to define the different types of medication errors and measure those so that you can compare them uh, like apples and apples. Now, we searched around for about two years, for the what we what we were looking for was an international uh, benchmarking standard that we thought was independent of any hospital, professionally run, and included a cross section of the world's best hospitals. And we settled on the uh, uh, it's called the Maryland Project. It, it was a project that was really originally started in the in the 1980s by the uh, uh, Maryland State uh, Hospital Association and it has since progressed into what is called uh, IQIP, uh, Inter- International Quality Indicator Project. And we signed up for that this, uh, this year. We we're the first, ho- we, As far as we know, we we're the first hospital in Thailand and one of the first hospitals in Asia to sign up for that. We signed up for it earlier this year, and they sent their representatives out in, I think, March of this year to teach our team of how they are defining the quality parameters that they measure. So it's just it's another example of, of our quest to benchmark our medical quality both as to processes as well as quality indicators as well as the outcome indicators for um, uh, against the best hospitals in the world. In addition to that, we, we get we constantly get inquiries from different insurance companies that are exploring, what we call the global care option, and that means providing the option of a patient obtaining care uh, in, a, in a, uh, a foreign or international hospital as opposed to their local hospital. And, of course, they need to do their due diligence to see what the outcomes are and what the quality indicators are for the hospitals that they might put on their provider list. So we, we have, uh, we're doing as much participation as, as, uh, as we can with the various insurance inquiries, uh, as well as the IQIP program.
1: Okay, one of the curious things that I noticed is when I was when I made my first visit uh, a couple of years ago. Um, Ken, I think mentioned in passing that uh, in terms of patient satisfaction survey scores, you're actually exceeding the average numbers that uh, the mean numbers that you would see in a North American hospital. Um, is that correct?
2: Yeah, we we actually. Uh... Last last year, um, we subscribed to the Gallup uh, Opinion Survey Group. That They have a a database of over 100 uh, hospitals worldwide that they do three types of surveys. Uh, They do patient engagement surveys, staff engagement surveys, and doctor engagement surveys. So, again, we wanted to benchmark ourselves and how we're doing in all of those Against uh, the world's best, and, and and we 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 sub we break our patient patient groups down into uh, international patients, Thai patients, and what we call the local expat, which are the resident uh, non-Thais that are in in Thailand, and that represents about 120,000 patients uh, of the 1.1 million that we see, so. Uh, for the international patients our, we're at basically there's, a, there's an index they have and we're in the 94th percentile for the international patients. So we, we look at, we sort of say uh, world class we want to be above 90% um, for all three of those, of those uh, groups and for the international patients uh, we we're, we're enjoy a, a very high satisfaction rate.
3: What's ironic is that uh, I think people might have the perception that uh, uh, out in the, the international world, maybe the, uh, the patients in the local populations are less demanding than an American would be, uh, and actually the opposite is the case because in this Gallup survey, actually our Thai patients are tougher customers. <laughs> they, they uh, you know, they're more demanding, and, and all the satisfaction scores show that uh, they have higher expectations, actually, than the international customer does
1: that's very interesting. One of the um, challenges that large, multi-speciality hospitals face is the idea of taking medical and clinical experts and subject them to a regime of metrics and total quality management discipline. It's it's something that that hospitals, as you well know, wrestle with all the time. You have put in a very high level of um, the quality, regime, discipline, both in terms of qualitative and quantitative metrics. What did it take to inculcate that culture of quality, that culture of going by metrics, the culture of constantly looking at business processes for improvement? How did you do it? What were the challenges and how did you actually achieve it?
2: I guess in uh, broad scale, in in comparing us with uh, U.S. hospitals and hospitals around the world, um, it's We probably had the same experience that all hospitals go through in uh, getting their medical staff to buy into these things. Now, if you look at it in in one way, the, the, the metrics that you use in total quality management and all those are very similar to the scientific method and to the diagnostic processes that doctors are familiar with anyway. Doctors basically, they use their judgment for when doing a, a, an assessment. Because they rely on the clinical data that they get from the laboratory, the reports from their imaging, so on. and and so they are very much at the end of the day they're scientists. So if 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 we present our data. In just the, here's the data. Let's draw the uh, let's let's look at the conclusions we would uh, reach from those data, the findings from those conclusions, and then what actions do we take? It, and that's pretty much what our quality management committee does. And that is a medical staff committee that meets monthly, and they have their their series of metrics just like they do in the U.S. They look at they look at the uh, at, at these at these metrics. And they have very active discussions about what, are the, what, are the, what does that data mean and what do we do about it? And just like in the States, you get doctors in those meetings that are talking about how that data relates to a patient that they have seen and the complications and sort of the real issues that are associated with those da- that data. So in that respect, it's pretty much like hospitals around the world and you get you get medical staff, uh, very medical staff members get enthusiastic about the data. Others are less so. But I think we, we are fortunate in that a, a lot of our doctors have practiced in the U.S., so they, they can relate to, one, the Joint Commission, and they can relate to the, 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 the U.S. style of medical staff committee structure and peer review structure that they're already familiar with. I would
3: add that uh, in terms of just aligning the culture, uh, at least as long as I've been here, the the top three goals of the company are satisfy patients, satisfy doctors and staff, and continuous quality improvement. So you know when we start out our annual planning, when we evaluate ourselves, we're, we we always go back to those three things.
1: Are there any specific incentives that you offer to different kinds of um, staff in the hospital for incenting them towards higher quality, especially for continuous quality improvement, as you put it, Ken?
2: We, we started a, uh, uh, an innovations program about two, two years ago. We have these town hall meetings. We initiated these about two years ago, and we had open questions from the staff And in the first town hall meeting, we had 500 questions. And then we we sorted through them, and we we looked at them. About 80% of them weren't real questions. They were, why can't we do this, and why can't we do this, or what about doing this? And they were suggestions. So we developed an innovations program that is intended to, one, solicit the ideas of the staff, evaluate them, and then recognize and reward the staff when they come up with innovations, both large and small and it, it's it's been in existence now for about a year and a half, and it had a slow uh, kickoff but I will say over the last six months that we had that we've had a, a ramp up and there's some there's some quite innovative uh, suggestions that have that have uh, come from our staff and we give them we give them cash awards and, and we have a points program where we have a uh, sort of like a frequent flyer thing where you'd assemble assemble points and we've got various uh, 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 gifts and and redeemable uh, uh, values, um, uh, redemption prizes and stuff that they can get. And then we also have a a QIP conference every uh, November, and that's a year-round competition in which... We, uh, we, for this year's conference, we already have over 100 uh, projects that have been initially submitted. and That'll be whittled down to about 20 finalists, and we'll have poster presentations. And we celebrate basically quality improvement uh, initiatives and projects that are taken that are taken on by either groups of one department or cross departmental, uh, cross discipline uh, teams. And they, they one, they, they complete these projects, and, and we also teach them sort of the, the, the research methodology with, with, in conjunction with the local uh, university uh, so that they're not just improvement projects. Hopefully they bring in sort of the world-class comparative data on whatever problem they're looking at. And then they, these folks are judged as to, one, the quality of their, of their work study, and two, the outcomes they've been able to achieve and the way they have methodically gone through the process.
1: So one of the issues uh, which is uh, which often goes in lockstep with quality and processes is uh, technical automation, and you are a very data-driven organization, as you pointed out, so the quality of the data is all important. Booming Red has often been called as the all-digital hospital, from all the way from... There are comprehensive databases that contain information about patients, everything from billing and medical history to digital images, x-rays of film, um, patient recommendation, you know pharmacological data, all of those things. Tell us about your information systems and your IT capabilities.
2: Our uh, information system innovation really uh, began just before we opened this hospital, we spent a couple of a couple of years developing a a uh, a a one source IT solution or an enterprise solution for our information technology system. And that's that that's a different approach than it probably adopted by 95%, 98% of the hospitals around the world in that we have one database, one system, one vendor to care for all of our IT needs. Now um, that, that system has turned out to be one of the key factors in allowing us to see the number of patients we see every day, over 3,000 outpatients every day, and about 85 to 95 admissions a day, so on and so forth, as, as rapidly and as uh, effectively as we can. The system as it originally was, was a combination of some digital data, but also a very, very sophisticated handwrite, scan, and sort. So we had analog data plus digital data in the old, what we used to call the H2000. In 87, I mean, in 07, Microsoft was looking to enter the the healthcare arena, and they looked worldwide, and they chose to purchase the software, uh, the H2000 software from the company, Global Care Solutions, and they subsequently renamed it Amalga H I S, and as part of that transaction, we became a development partner with Microsoft to further develop sort of the next generation of the Amalga H I S software, and that will be a totally digital version. And we are working in conjunction with them now on the features that make up that that uh, that. The next generation of their of their program, we have identified eight, 37 modules that are the core of those uh, of, of that um, of that uh, offering, and we are we've got various teams working on all of those, and some of them are already uh, migrated. Some of them are in are we've got different releases coming up uh, coming out on a scheduled basis, basically about two a year, that we will progressively introduce over the next well, we hope. Over the next two years, to where we will truly be a totally digital hospital.
1: So, how do you train your folks to get the uh, the best out of the platforms? The how do you train your clinical and non-clinical staff to make sure that they are constantly using it to all its capabilities as possible?
2: Oh, I wish we had a magic formula. We we, uh, we it's a work in progress. We uh, both both in the in the system and feature designs. Uh, by our staff in, in conjunction with the Microsoft staff, um, once we have developed sort of the, the 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 architecture and the structure of a particular uh, feature, and Microsoft has developed uh, you know the actual programming and the features, we you know we've got one hospital here, we've got uh, 3,500 staff, but. We can actually train our staff. We, we've got a full education center here, and we, we bring them in, and over a period of two or three weeks, you know, we have, just like you'd have in any hospital, you, you bring 25, 30 people in at a time, you set up 25 or 30 computers, and you, you train them on the features uh, during the test portion before you go live with it. And it's, in one sense, it's no different than any hospital would go through in any new IT implementation, it's just that ours is an enterprise solution, so it is, it is run off one database as opposed to multiple programs that have to be consolidated by some sort of uh, overall amalgamation program. It, it, you know, it's
3: interesting, because we, we talked to our colleagues in the States, uh, and they're all facing the same challenge about getting doctors to enter things into computer. I mean, it, it's wonderful in theory it makes your system more efficient, it it makes it faster, it it takes out a big source of errors, but it requires doctors to be typing in these things and to to be doing these things. And um, it's not easy to get doctors to do that. And uh, it also, you know, it has the potential to take something away from the doctor-patient interaction. If the doctor has got his head buried in a computer rather than looking at the patient and having a dialogue with the patient, you don't want that to happen either. So hospitals—not uh, uh, just our hospital, but I think hospitals everywhere—are uh, are facing this challenge.
1: I noticed the when I visited your um, where the unit medicine dosages are being assembled. The use of uh, Swisslog and the um, very nicely calibrated business processes that have been put together so that the platform and the process they deliver the kind of results. Tell us a little bit about the use of robotics in your clinical, your uh, pharmacological processes in terms of uh, administering, assembling, and identifying unit doses of medicine.
2: Actually, this is just one feature in that is a is a benefit of the programming that we're putting in place along with Microsoft, in that we are able to go from. Uh, CP, CPOE computerized provider order entry for medication directly to the uh, the Swiss log robot dispensing which which dispenses in unit dose and they also program and put on rings the the, the unit doses in the in the time order in which the, the medication should be administered by the uh, by the nurse and we also put in in our remodel rooms a bedside computer monitor and, and bedside administ- uh, medication administration station so that as we grow and we're in the process of basically reinventing our campus and expanding our capabilities by our outpatient capabilities by around almost 100% and our inpatient capabilities by somewhere around 25 to 30%. So we're by digitizing our hospital we, we will be able to, what, what we think it is, or what, our, what our goal is, is to be able to care for a substantially higher number of patients with increased personalization and increased patient safety So, because one of the, one of the main sources of medication uh, errors are, tra- are simple transcription errors of, of uh, the pharmacist or the nurse not being sure what the doctor wrote or what he said, if it's a telephone order. So, this is, these systems have been proven to help eliminate those errors because they are they are either they're either typed in by the doctor or it's on a drop-down menu before he selects the medication, the dosage, the route, and all the the, the five rights. So that um, it it basically will allow us to deliver. Uh, more medication to a higher number of patients and increase the patient's safety and the patient's comfort that they're getting the right medication uh, at the right time, the right dose, so on and so forth.
1: Okay. Let's take the the sequence of events that happen after a patient has had a successful procedural intervention, has spent some time after the surgery or after the procedure, And he is now ready to go back to his home country, whether it's United Kingdom or Saudi Arabia or, let's say, North America. Are there ways in which you help transfer this information, the medical context, to the physician of the patient so that there's continued care that's available to the patient in his home country?
2: The short answer is yes. That group of uh, International Medical Coordination Office that Ken mentioned earlier, the 25 doctors and nurses, that, that that's what they do. They basically prepare reports of the care that's been received here, and they'll transmit that either, we give it to the patient, if it, if it, or they can transmit it electronically to the patient's caregiver if authorized by the patient. In some cases, particularly for our Middle East patients, we have arrangements with uh, government groups, and they have their own medical panels, that will have reviewed that patient and basically they will have authorized the care and our doctors coordinate back with that medical panel and, and work with them as far as here's what the patient received. This is, what, this is what we recommend that they need as follow-up and then it's up to them to arrange that in, in their uh, home country.
1: What kind of capacity constraints do you face now? And where do you see yourself going in the next 36 months or so?
2: Right now, our capacity constraints are uh, that we have generally are the we have select clinics that we haven't moved over to our new building yet. And we we are suffering from overcrowding of those clinics. Now, we have a we have a uh, master plan over the next two to four years to grow out and expand our capabilities for all of our outpatient services.
1: Can you give us an example of some innovations and best practices that you have pioneered? Something that you can share with our readers that would give us insights into the kind of hospital that you are?
2: Um, I'll give you a good example here of, of something that, how we are approaching sort of the next generation of medical innovation, and that's stem cell technology. There is... Um, Stem cell, stem cell technology and applications are widely perceived to be sort of the next generation of medica, medica, medical advances, and there are two ways to approach, two fundamental ways to approach that. You can do it in the scientific, the scientific method that have clinical trials that are documented, and they go through the inter, uh, institutional review boards, and they are ethically tested by, you know, by independent parties, and then there are more of the, of the, uh, the uh, independent uh, less regulated uh, applications, and we set up a steering council to ensure that our hospital and our doctors follow the scientific mo- uh, method of evaluating stem cell advances, so that when they are broadly moved from the clinical lab into uh, accepted clinical, ap- I mean from the from the uh, from the uh, research lab to clinical uh, applications that we will be positioned to be in the forefront of when they have passed through the, the peer review process and our accepted uh, treatments. There are other hospitals, uh, primarily outside of the U.S., uh, that, that are not taking that path. They are doing more experimental uses of stem cell technology. We are not. Everything we do with, our, with uh, any sort of advanced technology is run through our institutional review board and is only incorporated into our, uh, into our practice after it has gone through peer, scientific peer review.
1: Um, let's come to the business uh, environment uh, in which offshore healthcare finds itself. Bumingrad was one of the first hospitals in Asia, perhaps the first in Thailand, To actually set up a partner program with an insurance large insurance firm in the United States, such as Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, Um, am I correct in this? Can you tell me more about this?
2: We uh, we think we we were the first hospital. Uh, The gentleman uh, who who basically was the driver behind that, a gentleman named David Boucher, uh, he actually was on on a on a on a Private vacation trip to Thailand, and came and visited our hospital, and ended up staying about two or three days. And he did his own little joint commission type of, of survey himself. He, you know, he he told us what he wanted, you know, what he was exploring, and who he was, and everything. And we said, fine, you know, you know, we we put him in um, in scrubs, and he went to the operating theater. We, you know, we we showed him our systems and what we what we had, and it took him about a year from his initial visit to convince the Blue Cross of South Carolina to develop a product that would be an option of what we now call a global care option that other insurance companies are are exploring and are in some stages of development. And um, while we haven't have not seen a large number of patients out of this, and we think they're they're there are reasons that are mostly U.S. centric. Why that? Why that's the case? We do think that that this global patient option uh, to be developed and offered by insurance companies may get some traction in the future by uh, and be one product offering that that uh, many uh, U.S. and European insurance companies incorporate into their uh, policy offerings.
1: So I guess my question then is for offshore health to enter more mainstream and not just be a boutique option it is important to be able to structure payment options as you pointed out as a part of a formal product offering one of the many portfolio of offerings that insurance companies put on the table before consumers what are the barriers why why are insurance companies in the united states as well as in the european union slow to embrace the global Healthcare financing option.
2: Well, uh, you probably need to, to speak with the insurance companies to get their their views. Our perception is is that the 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 main barrier are regulatory and legal, and it's the perception of if uh, if it, if if an individual goes to a foreign country to get a procedure they understand and accept that they are making that choice and they are basically putting themselves in the hands of a foreign hospital and the foreign jurisdiction if there is some sort of, of dispute or allegation of a uh, medical misadventure, malpractice, negligence, whatever. And I think an individual will know that. If, if an individual is sent somewhere by an insurance company then and something goes wrong then their recourse becomes to that insurance company and generally the 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 judicial relief and the awards that would be afforded in a in a US court for medical malpractice and medical misadventures are are astronomically higher than the reliefs that are that are available in most foreign jurisdictions and it's basically proportional to the cost savings that you have when you go overseas so I don't think the insurance companies are comfortable in basically potentially being uh, having to adjudicate one of these cases in a U.S. jurisdiction, and they, they haven't gotten comfortable with that yet. Our view is is that for a select group of procedures, and that's probably about 10 to 20 or so of the higher-cost procedures, that the cost savings are so great, and that the quality offerings by hospitals like ours and others are at a standard that they can figure out a way to insure themselves if they get faced with some sort of uh, medical legal dispute in their own jurisdiction in the U.S. Now, that hasn't happened broadly yet. There are some products out there that have been introduced that we think Show some promise, but that's not for us that's for the for the uh, either the insurance companies or the large employers to get comfortable with those and then it becomes a, a whole matter of how many patients could they think would eventually go overseas and how comfortable are they with the these provisions to to address what could be a fairly significant financial exposure to them that would negate all of the financial savings if they don't make provisions for this. Uh, so we think that that's uh, one thing. The other thing is is that uh, you know, not all patients are suitable to come overseas. You know, there are they're both uh, physical and health-related reasons why people are not suitable to travel long distances for their care, and then some people just don't want to do it. They, they, they don't want to travel to another country they've never been to. They don't want to travel over, you know, x number of time zones or whatever. So, uh, out of all that, we think that there is probably a, a, a fairly significant group of patients that can benefit from it at some point in the future. But there's still work to be done. The other, the other
3: issue, I think, is just the complexity of the American healthcare system. And the fact that this has to go through several steps before it actually ends up with patients coming over to international hospitals. I mean, it starts with an international insurance executive like David Boucher, uh, you know, deciding that this is a powerful concept and selling it to his uh, uh, management and designing a plan. And then they have to put together a network of international providers that could service this plan. And then they have to take this plan to uh, U.S. employers and sell the plan to them. And then the U.S. employers have to add it to their benefits booklet as a kind of a column B. You know, here you have the option. You can, we'll waive your uh, deductible and your copay and we'll pay for your travel if you want to get your hip replaced in Thailand. And then some number of those employees has to get sick or need treatment, and then they have to decide to take this option, and then they finally maybe show up at our doorstep. So there's about five different levels that that has to go through before it really results in a meaningful number of patients going overseas for treatment. And what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of uh, noise and buzz up in those first couple stages and a lot of uh, very animated discussion amongst the big names in insurance uh, the Blues, the Aetnas, the Cygnus, and so forth, discussions with international hospitals um, about this. But it's interesting because at at SHRM, which is the big uh, HR convention that happens every year in the U.S. in in, at their convention in New Orleans in in June, uh, somebody conducted a survey, and the actual HR managers at employers who are ultimately the ones who have to then accept this idea and say this is a good idea, I'm going to offer this to my employees, Uh, This survey showed that very few of them were even aware of this concept uh, or or interested in in it much yet. So I think it's kind of gone two steps into a five-step process, and and, uh, it it, it takes a few years for big ideas to really get traction in the the complex American medical system.
1: Okay. Um, So you mentioned the regulatory environment as, uh, as a part of your response to my question, which brings us naturally to the um, issue of health care reform that is now underway in the United States. How do you think it will impact your volume of patients? It will increase it, decrease it, not at all, or are these early days yet?
2: Bottom line is we don't know. We, 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 you know, we, we follow the, uh, the news and the evolution of how this uh, health care reform is, is being uh, discussed in, in both houses of, of Congress, and the various features, and we just until until we actually get a bill and see uh, what comes out and evaluate uh, uh, what what the implications are, we, we just don't know. Uh, I will say that I've been in this business now for 35 years, and I saw the first, quote, health care reform. It was public law ninety two six oh three It was passed in uh, 1972. And there's been a a track record, a 35-year track record of the government after they passed Medicare and Medicaid in 65 and 68 of trying to regulate cost and utilization and abuses and so on and so forth, and to the point where we're now, the U.S. is spending about $2 trillion in health care, and it's one estimate that about 30% of that, or $600 billion, are spent on utilization review nurse types and administration to basically uh, oversee the doctor's choice of what they, what they believe is in the best interest of the patient. So the, the question really is, is this going to be yet another stream, another healthcare care reform attempt that at the end of the day is only going to add another layer of bureaucracy or, is it, or are they going to be able to achieve some fundamental reforms? And quite frankly, we don't know yet.
1: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the Bumumgrad Group. What, is, what does the Bumumgrad Group do as opposed to just the hospital? Are you planning to put up other multi-speciality units? Are you planning to carry over your success in other forms into ventures?
2: In 19, I mean, in 2005, we established uh, Bumumgrad International Limited, and that has subsequently been uh, spun off into an associated company that we own 31.5% of. Along with some of our key investors, uh, including uh, a in uh, out of Dubai and tomasek out of uh, Singapore, these are the uh, the uh, government uh, private investment owners, both those governments and uh, other private investors here in, in Bangkok it established uh, uh, boomgrad international limited that that company basically is our uh, investment and operational arm outside of the country of Thailand, and they have um, they have three major businesses currently and are looking for others. One is a hospital that we we purchased in uh, outside of Manila, Asian Hospital International. We own currently 53% of that, and then we uh, two years ago we bought a uh, uh, Asia Renal Care, which is a now now a uh, 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 yes. a group of 96 dialysis clinics in eight countries. And we also have a management contract uh, with the uh, uh, government of uh, UAE, United Arab Emirates and Abu Dhabi, to manage the Al Mafraq Hospital, which is on the outskirts of uh, Abu Dhabi. And that's a five-year management agreement that we're, I think, we're in the second year of that agreement. And in part of that, we're planning... We're helping them plan for a 600-bed replacement hospital uh, to replace the existing hospital. So, what, what the idea of that, of that was that we would take the the Blumengrad name, the, the 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 history, the systems of whatever you know, that we've developed over our 29-year track record here, and look for opportunities to expand that brand in Asia and the, the the target market for the BIL basically is asia which extends from the mediterranean to the pacific ocean
1: since we're speaking of geography thailand and bangkok in some sense is often uh, or bangkok hospital and and in thailand is often mentioned sometimes synonymously as the gold standard in, in offshore healthcare but what other regions do you see emerging? I know that there is Parkway in Singapore. There is the Wokart in in India that is trying to offer these services. Can you tell us some hospitals and regions that you think are emerging as destinations for offshore health care?
2: Oh, I would guess. Um, but you've you named, you named two, the Parkway Group, as well as all of Singapore. Singapore has a, has a group called Singapore Medicine as a government initiative, government-sponsored initiative to promote Singapore as a medical hub. Uh, so they're they're definitely emerged as, as a competitor. India, broadly, uh, they have several groups that are are uh, doing high-volume uh, uh, surgeries there. And uh, Malaysia has has uh, has a government effort to promote the Malaysian private hospitals that are that are choosing to uh, offer and focus on international health care. Interestingly enough, over the last uh, over the last year or two, Korea and Japan are also uh, uh, pursuing the provision of international health care and in uh, recruiting for international patients. Now they're coming off a very small base but they've had you know they've had stunning growth off a very small base over the last year or so. Um, so we're not without we're not without direct competitors. Now closer to uh, closer to the U.S. market, there are quite a few uh, uh, competitor organizations. We we understand in in Mexico and throughout the Car- the Caribbean and in uh, Central and South America. So uh, a lot of people are are uh, a lot of organizations have. Been caught up with the with the the, the potential promise of, of of a large number of patients going overseas. So we we've got a lot of competition now.
1: Given your expertise and the obvious um, volume constraints that you face, are you considering having strategic partnership or alliances with hospitals in places like India, Malaysia, uh, let's say even Vietnam? Vietnam, you already have a presence, but would you have? Alliances in places like India and Malaysia with with hospitals that could give comparable quality of care.
2: We wouldn't rule that out. We haven't we haven't found a model yet that that uh, works to mutual benefit uh, yet. Uh, there there are various models that we you know we have considered. It just hasn't it just hasn't happened yet. Now that's that's as a as an independent. Uh, that's, that's for us here in, at uh, Bumagrad Hospital in, in Bangkok. Our international division, they do have partnerships with local business partners as well as, as uh, uh, medical partners like in, in Asian Hospital International, that we own 53 percent of that, uh, uh, of that shareholding. and the rest of that shareholding is held by local investors, uh, including some of the, the, the medical staff, uh, key medical staff on that, in that hospital.
1: Given that several regions are emerging and there are many players that are entering this space, let's come return to the question of marketing and uh, tell us some ways some marketing initiatives or that you've undertaken uh, to keep your significant lead from diminishing, in terms of reaching out to uh, entities such as you know employers, et cetera, but also to retail patients in, in various countries.
3: Well, I, I think one of the things that uh, um, we've done in the last year or two is to put more emphasis on our local Thai patients, uh, and, and that's kind of like balancing the stock portfolio. I, I think uh, we want to be diversified. We want to have a healthy international portfolio. We want to have a healthy portfolio of Thai patients, and. Um, uh, We've been focused on international growth for a while, and we've been getting very heady growth. And uh, we also have a lot of competition here in Bangkok. So uh, in the last couple of years, we've done some uh, uh, important initiatives for our Thai patients. We have a a very successful member program for our Thai patients. Um, uh, And and so we've done that. Other marketing initiatives, we continue to expand our representative office networks. When a country develops uh, easy flight connections to Thailand, uh, like Ethiopia, uh, like Mongolia, uh, those countries often become ideal markets for us. And we start to see explosive growth. And so we open an office, and uh, we we find a representative in one of those markets. And and we use that to help develop those those markets, uh, because we just become kind of a natural regional uh, referral center for for those markets.
1: In most industries, as, it, as the industry matures and scale and scope jointly increase, you will see specialization taking place. Do you expect to see the future of offshore global healthcare model driven by large multi-speciality healthcare service providers such as yourself, or do you expect to see a lot of it going into single-speciality providers such as, say, ophthalmic clinics, et cetera? So where do you see this going? Or is it some kind of a coexistence of both?
2: I think you're going to see a combination of both. Uh, you've got a lot of uh, niche providers or sort of single specialty of sort of the lighter version, the lighter uh, uh, specialty in medicine. Plastic surgery, uh, some uh, eye care, it, uh, dentistry, those sorts of things can be effectively uh, packaged in, in single uh, unit uh, Institutions, either multi, either small hospitals or large clinics, and you can process patients through for your uh, quite effectively in, in, in those type of uh, subspecialty hospitals. For your for your other sort of heavy duty subspecialties like neurosurgery, cardiology, oncology, and so on and so forth, most uh, many of those specialties uh, the patients have comorbidities, so you really benefit by having a larger uh, multi-specialty uh, tertiary hospital center so that you can have a critical mass of patients that are coming through to actively engage your top-level subspecialists. You know, the idea that you can have a subspecialty neurosurgery hospital totally independent, might, you might find it working, uh, uh, you know, in, in some unique circumstances, but broadly speaking, those patients are going to need the the support of any number of other surgeon and, and internal medicine specialists while they're getting uh, their care. And you can't get the top-level subspecialists in those care to come for just one specialty support because they just don't have the critical mass of patients. So uh, there, there are opportunities, particularly in the, in the, quote, lighter subspecialties, to have uh, independent uh, hospital provision but in your in your larger heavy you know ter- high tertiary uh, uh, subspecialties, you do benefit by the critical mass of having them in multi specialty hospitals and clinics.
1: One last question then um, pretty much every commercially available um, report from both research firms and consulting firms on the future of uh, global healthcare seems to suggest that we are set for a period of uh, exceptionally high growth. The numbers range from anything from. 10% a year to 57%, 60% a year. So are there some interesting trends that you see coming? Other than just the numbers, do you think something interesting, are there ideas, trends that you would like to share with our uh, readers?
2: It, it's interesting because we, we read those reports and uh, by the McKinsey Group, by Deloitte, and others, and we participated in, in actually their compilation and, and, and writing and we think they they have basically generated a lot of our competition because everybody other hospitals are reading those reports and saying, hey, we better we better get in this business as well. I think there um, I think there are multiple sort of influences on health care, international health care in the future. And here are some of the main drivers. The positive drivers are the world is aging, the the cost of care, particularly in uh, North America and Europe seems to continue to go up, and the ability of traditional payers, including the government, are getting more and more limited as to how just how much can they spend for healthcare in the in the in their traditional uh, provision uh, past provision uh, services. International travel is getting. Uh, one, less expensive, and two, more readily available and acceptable to many people. I mean, you've got more and more people that don't think anything about traveling either two hours or six hours or ten hours to travel internationally. So um, we think that the the long-term positive trends to facilitate patients feeling more and more comfortable with going overseas Uh, Those are positive. We think that there are going to be more providers that are going to develop services, similar to the ones that we've developed over the last 10 years. And, and, you know, so the the actual provision of services will become, there will be more available services at a higher standard uh, and higher quality. There will be more standardization as more hospitals become joint commission accredited and more hospitals subscribe to international quality benchmarking uh, services so that the information as to what services and the quality of services and so on and so forth that are available in different countries will be increasingly available. So we, we think that over time that international health care will cease to be a new phenomenon. It'll just, it'll, it'll, some, it'll settle into it is a one alternative provider source. Available to people around the world, and where that level is, at, at what level that that ends up is anybody's guess. Because we're still writing this chapter around the evolution of very little international travel to it becoming uh, more mainstream, and we don't know. We we still don't know where it's going to settle in at what level. I will say that uh, in our hospital, we we are. Uh, expanding our campus and always focused on the services that we feel like the international patient wants. So we're getting ourselves ready, not only for the international patient, but increasingly for the insurance and third-party payers as to how they want to, one, be, be, uh, be paid for these, for these uh, patients. Uh, and the report writing that they want in the way of uh to to provide for the follow up care once they come back to their home country so it 's a it 's a multi dimensional future and and uh, our crystal ball is no probably no better than anybody else 's
1: that is a very interesting summary uh Gentlemen, thank you very much. This has been an extremely informative and insightful interview.
2: Well, we're we're happy to we're happy to participate. Thanks for asking. Thank you, Robert.
0: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.